The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. So the conversation we're looking at for our thinking point today is around the prevention and combating of hate crimes and hate speech bill. Ultimately, what this bill seeks to do is criminalize, um, you know, the offenses of hate crime and hate speech. It, of course, outlines appropriate sentences in that regard and also outlines just then what would constitute what constitutes hate crime and what constitutes hate speech. And I think a lot of debate has really centered on the hate speech aspects, given the extent to which um, aspects of the bill have been broadened uh, to include all sorts of uh, things that could be effective, that could effectively be constituted as hate speech. Of course, it also comes with a list of exclusions. But, um, you know, clause four of that bill talks about a person that's guilty of hate speech when they, one, intentionally publish advocate anything or communicate a clear intention to be harmful to incite harm or hatred based on a range of factors that include age albinism birth color culture disability ethnic or social origin gender or gender identity hiv status language nationality or migrant or refugee status, race, religion, sex, which includes intersex or sexual orientation. And, you know, those are just some of um, the specifics that have been put into this bill. Let me invite Tyler Dallas, who's manager of the Co- of constitutional programs at the FW de Klerk Foundation. Tyler, good morning to you. Thanks for your time today on The Talking Point. Morning, Kathy, and I'm so glad to be here. I saw you beautifully moderate the Stellenbosch University Social Justice Summit last week, so I'm very excited to be here and chat about the hate speech bill. One of the concerns that you are raising around this bill, Tyler, is that you believe it could potentially limit the freedom of speech and criminalize protected speech in this country. Why? Yes, so it's a submission that the foundation has had and I held in the article that you're referring to, but it's not only us. Over 100,000 submissions made by the public, many of which have expressed the exact same concern of um, this bill having the potential to unreasonably limit the rights to freedom of expression. The reason being exactly as you just um, spoke about is that it has very, very broad definitions for some of the elements. And remember what we're talking about with this bill is the criminalization of hate speech. So for first offence, what this bill would carry is a three-year prison sentence. Um, so it's, it's very alarming that um, in the bill, we're seeing that harm is going much further than what Section 16 of the Constitution says. Again, Section 16 of the Constitution confers on every person their right to freedom of expression. It then goes on to have very closely defined um, limitations on this free speech right, in that only where it constitutes propaganda for war incites imminent violence or advocates hatred based on and goes to the foregrounds race, ethnicity, gender or religion 
should it be limited. What we're seeing in the bill is that these four specific grounds are extended to 15 and the harm definition, which um, the Constitutional Court held last year in Kalani versus the South African Human Rights Commission, um, that harm would only be deep emotional and psychological harm. In the bill, we're seeing that harm can include things such as physical or social harm, which are very broad definitions that aren't actually explained in the bill. Even the term harmful isn't actually explained in the bill. So the alarm with the bill, the fear with the bill in its current form, is that because we have a broad element for characteristics, a broad element for harm, and then the subjective um, determinant of when liability should be imposed, there's a fear that it could lead to self-censoring of media, of public, and of institutions to avoid criminal liability. Uh, Tyler, is this not based on the fact that the world we live in has evolved so much and the ways in which harm is, you know, the way that in which harm is affected on people manifests itself in different ways. So if somebody tweets something about an individual, etc., that would constitute hate speech, the harm that they experience is so much further than if those were words that were said to them when it's just two people in the room. And I do hear you on that point, and I'm glad we, we get into the social media aspect because I think that that's important, and I would like to give some examples on how it can impact on social media. But just to your point, I was thinking about that a little bit earlier. I mean, I'm one of the born free babies. We're 28 <laughs> years into this new young democracy. We have all our shiny, bright, fundamental rights in the Constitution. And I think that's important, is that the baseline fundamentally is Section 16 when it comes to freedom of expression. Anything further than that needs to be done um, in line with the Section 36 limitation of rights, because what we're looking at with this bill, with the criminalization of hate speech, is a limitation. It then goes on to say, I'm not going to go through the whole thing because I think I'll bore your listeners, um, but some of the (laughs) factors that you meant to look at is the importance of the purpose of the limitation, as well as whether there's less restrictive means to achieve the purpose. Now, to your point about the purpose of the limitation, it has a laudable goal, and exactly like you say, with social media at the moment, people can say anything, and there doesn't seem to be much um, liability for it. But again, what we're looking at is the far-reaching um, provision that this bill will have on some speech that that yes, might offend, might shock, might disturb, but Kualani, the Constitutional Court has held in Kualani that that is still a protected form of speech. So going on social media and writing something, yes, it might offend some people, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to have that expression. Of course, that's within parameters and varying degrees of hate and hateful speech should carry different types of liability, but it shouldn't be a catch-all painting everyone with the same brush that everyone gets criminal liability. And what this bill does is it doesn't have a clear enough distinction, which is a requirement in our law that the law be certain, especially when imposing criminal liability. Um, It has a very broad definition. That means a person who writes something won't know if they're going to be criminally liable, whether they're going to be civilly liable and have to apologize or pay a fine, or whether there's going to be no sanction. So we need certainty. Um, Going to the point of social media, it's an example I gave yesterday on Cape Talk about just how the bill could be used. Um, So the bill says that a victim can be a natural person, so an individual, as well as a juristic person. Now let's think about um, 
the amount of times that people have had a cancelled flight and taken to social media to absolutely lament the airline um, and they go on a bit of a tangent. So let's say that that happens to someone. They go on Facebook and they write the scathing review of the airline. They say the airline doesn't have integrity um, and they call on all their friends to boycott the airline. Now, we've just said that the a juristic person can be a victim, so an airline can be a victim of hate speech. Um, we said that harm, we have this broad definition, economic harm is included in this definition. You've now called for your friends to boycott the airline, so you've met the second element. The third element would be based on characteristic. Well, the, the, the bill says that conscience, so moral or values, can be a characteristic, which means that you've met three elements. And you can easily be found guilty of hate speech. The only thing that would stop it would be the director of public prosecution deciding not to to prosecute you, which is is bizarre. It's, it's very bizarre because it's something that we do constantly. We always want to express our views on social media. Um, even sharing type, this type of material can have the same uh, liability imposed, the same three-year sentence. Um, clause 41B and C of the bill would see a person fined or imprisoned even where they may have just shared content to report it. So it's the intention to distribute the video as opposed to the intention to actually be harmful or incite harm. Um, and just on that note, in Germany, similar hate speech legislation has seen homes raided, electronic devices confiscated, and more than a thousand people charged with hate speech, some of whom merely shared a false quote or insulted a politician. When we look at the exemptions uh, that are contained just um, under Clause 4.2, and those, of course, some of them include freedom of the press, other media, um, you know, freedom to receive and part ideas. It also then talks about um, that what is excluded from the ambit of hate speech is anything done in good faith. And mm. that goes on to extend to academic, scientific inquiry, or fair and accurate reporting or commentary um, that is in the public interest. Would that not, does it not answer the question of um, the example you've given us, somebody who's angry at an airline for having received b- bad service? Because that could very much uh, be seen as, as fair commentary. So I, I do hear you on that, and I mm-hmm. think that the exemptions, although that they do give some exemptions, the argument then is based on based on everyone's right to receive and impart information and ideas. Why? Exactly like you say, we have in good faith artistic creativity, scientific inquiry, accurate reporting or commentary in the public interest, um, and then the politicizing of any religious belief. But again, that accurate reporting or commentary in the public interest is left to open interpretation, subjective interpretation. What is public interest? When would it be in the public interest? So you as a person are not clear on when you'll be criminally liable for saying something about an airline or when you're not. And that is the issue. That is the crux. And even on that note, why should an artist, academic, journalist, and religious practitioner enjoy greater rights to freedom of expression than any ordinary citizen? Um, just on that note, even if we look at the the last point, the, the bona fide interpretation, politicizing of any religious belief, um, the examples that I've been engaging with is that this would only be the case when it was in a religious place of worship or when it is um, a genuine public politicizing, meaning that if a priest, let's say, was in a bar having a general discussion with someone about um, 
LGBTQ rights, because I think that's something that we do need to talk about, and it does need to be front and focus um, of conversation. Tyler, let me do this. I'm going to ask you just to hold that thought for me. I'll give you a chance to continue after the latest 9.30 news headlines. We continue the conversation on the talking point. In a moment, I'll be taking your calls. The number to dial 086-000-2032. That's 086-000-2032. And, you know, I think part of the conversation that we can have is just around our own mindfulness, especially when we are putting things up on social media, the things that we are saying. Are we mindful of this question of harm that whatever that it is that we're saying carries with it and the potential now, especially um, once this bill has been charged, has been signed rather, for that to be criminalized. And uh, I think it creates so much more consciousness in, in, in our society and things that we need to be aware of, things that we cannot take for granted. Uh, Tyler Dallas is the manager of constitutional programs at the FW Declared Foundation. So Tyler, you were still talking to us about the issue of exemptions and why it is you believe that even though there are these exemptions, they seem to give greater rights uh, of freedom of speech to some individuals in society than everybody else. Yes, exactly. And I think that if we have our fundamental rights in Section 16, everyone should have equal access and enjoyment of that right, unless there are specific limitations that fall in line again with Section 36 of the Constitution. So the example that I was going on to give, specifically looking at religious practitioners and the proselytizing of religious beliefs. So how the bill is framed is that a priest who walks into a bar and begins general discussion with fellow patrons about let's say LGBTQ rights or the community and then goes on to quote Genesis 1 chapter 27 which states God created male and female. The way the hate speech clause is framed, the priest would be protected from criminal liability if instead of being in a bar, they were in a religious place of worship or proselytizing in public. The fact that they were in a public space expressing an opinion that someone may have found subjectively harmful and that the comment dealt with a listed characteristic, which we know is sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, and sex characteristics, means that they would be guilty of the crime of hate speech. Whether or not um, the, the nuance of whether he or they were genuinely proselytizing or merely expressing an opinion is left open to interpretation. And that's the fear here, is that even with the exemptions, there's so so much room for um, when someone could be liable, when someone wouldn't be liable. And it's not certain. It's not certain that if you say X, it'll carry this sanction. And that is the reason that I believe that the bill would impact freedom of expression because people would be forced to self censor. They would be scared to say things for fear that it would upset someone from the long-listed characteristics and that it could be harmed with the broad definition in the bill. What is the worst case scenario? So when you look at um, uh, when you look at the, the future of, of this bill, what do you fear most? 
So I think the worst case scenario, we don't even need to look into the future. We need to look in the past. Um, in apartheid, we had censoring, we had censorship, and people were not allowed to say certain things. Media was forbidden from reporting on certain things. Um, we've seen it play out in other countries around the world. And we most recently, with state capture scandal, saw threats to journalists. So I think we know exactly where the censoring of free speech can go. I think it's also so important, we did make the point earlier, that we have a young democracy. We need genuine, robust debate on issues of the day to have a democratic governance that's going to be accountable, responsive and open. Um, and I think just it's important to note that I'm not saying that there shouldn't be instances where harmful speech doesn't carry sanction. I think sometimes people can be really nasty and really disgusting and sometimes the things that people say, are, it's just not okay and there should be some type of liability. What I'm saying is that by criminalizing so broadly, so many types of speech, you're not going to eliminate hate. You're just going to drive it further underground and make it harder for people to identify, report, and act against. Um, and I think it's important to also note that our courts have held that harmful speech does not equate to harm, and it does not always lead to sanction. The same nuance needs to be in this bill. Uh, before you go, Tyler, I've got uh, I've got a caller here who wants to ask you a question. Anonymous, good morning. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Ah, thank you very much for the conversation. It speaks um, to me personally, and I just want to ask your your panel. Good day, ma'am. How are you? I, before I ask, let me greet first. Good morning. Good thanks for you. Ah, good, good, good. Um, I, I hear the issue that you raised with regards to the bill, and it's it, it's false. It's false. But in my mind, I was thinking, what has the current compliance been from our journalists? And and I'm going to use a, a personal example and say, um, I was accused of a, a sexual offence last year, and a journalist, a seasoned journalist from IOL, published my name and surname and details online. And when I looked at the law, the law says you can't do it before the man has pleaded. And, and, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know what this bill is about, but, but what is the current compliance? Are our journalists who are seasoned and experienced and our editors doing following the law as it stands now? Mm. And I think it's a question to you. Yes, and I think it's such a good question. So what you're talking about is um, something that I think everyone was worried about last year, which is Poppy, the Protection of Personal Information Act. So that's probably where you're going with this, is that they shared your personal information. It should have been kept private. It shouldn't have been in the public space. Again, though, the issue is that it doesn't mean we need to criminalize the fact that someone made the speech. There needs to be parameters, and I think that's what you're talking to, and I think it's very important no, that no, they no, definitely... No, Yes. So where I'm talking to is Section 154 of the Criminal Protection Act, Criminal Procedures Act. It's quite clear. And I just hope you can all take the moment to read Section 154 of the Criminal Procedures Act. It says prior to anyone accused of a sexual offence, you don't publish his name before you plead. Mm, mm. Because people get hurt, people get killed. Mm, because you haven't mm. had a chance to answer this charge but your name is in the media. Mm. Anonymous, and, and, and it's did, unlawful. Anonymous, did you ever follow it up? Because, I, you, I, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, mm. you are not the only person who has gone through this experience. And, um, and I know that it is something that newsrooms 
do, even though, even though, like you're saying, it should not be done. And, you know, some of the the examples are that, you know, um, the best recourse there is to actually take it up with the individual media houses and even with the press ombud. No, 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 no. IOL doesn't belong to the press ombud. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You did say IOL, yeah. uh, yeah. My conversation went to your guest, who is an independent internal ombudsman, Mm. and it it was it, it's a nonchalant situation. Yeah. And the issue on the table is it is criminalized in the Criminal Procedure Act. It's like it, it, you go to jail for five years. But but my question is not about what the MPA is doing about it. My question is internally, the journalists, the people who comment on on on, on press rights, are they looking at the members and saying, are we complying with the law as it stands? And, and, and I think it's not a... they're right or wrong. It's just a question: Are you complying? Mm. I think it's also important to note that what you're speaking to is whether there's liability in that instance where you're defamed because someone is now putting out this this information about you, making these accusations, and there not being any um, basis for those findings. Now, again, just speaking to the bill specifically, this is going to criminalize hate speech. Hate speech is already dealt with under civil law. It's already dealt with under common law. And what you're speaking to is defamation. We already have a criminal defamation. So, again, this bill would not in the example that you've just given, have any real bearing or have any real impact or have any real purpose in that instance. So again, it points to the need or the the lack of a need to have this type of criminalization of hate speech. Well, All right. Thank you, ma'am. Thank it, you for your time. Uh, thank you for your words. Uh, sure. Anonymous, thanks for calling in. Tyler, I'll leave it there with you for this morning. Manager of Constitutional Programs at the FW Declare Foundation.